there's an expression that's been around a while that says, what God knows about me is infinitely more important than what others think about me. That's a true statement, and yet as true as it is, it won't have much impact in your life if you don't actually believe it. <clears throat> See, because the fact is, every one of us, we all approach our lives based on our view of who we actually believe that we are. Not who we say we believe we are, not who we believe we're supposed to be, or who we believe we should be, or could be, or even want to be. See, at the end of the day, we, we approach our lives, all of us do, based on who we actually believe we are, what we believe about ourselves, which obviously begs the question, who do you believe you are? The person God says you are, or the person you've convinced yourself you are, based on other voices in your life, maybe even your own? Because look, even though God says you're deeply loved, if you believe that you're unlovable, then you won't allow other people to love you the way they could and want to. You'll push people away, actually, through your behavior. And in the process, you miss out on relationships you were meant to have, relationships that would enrich your life in ways you can't even imagine. And even though God says you're more than a conqueror, in his word, if you believe you're always a victim, well, then you'll blame other people for all your problems. And in the process, you never overcome them. You end up perpetually feeling defeated by your circumstances and held down by other people. And look, ultimately, you miss out on experiences, victories, in fact, that only come through struggle when you refuse to give up until you overcome those circumstances. Look, even though God says to humble yourself, if you believe that you're better than everyone else around you, then you'll be condescending in how you interact with people. And in the process, you alienate yourself from other people, people who actually have a lot to offer you Yet you rob yourself of those blessings when you don't allow other people to speak into your life. And even though God says we're to learn from one another, if you believe you already know more than everyone else around you, well, then you'll be unteachable. And in the process, you stunt your own growth spiritually and otherwise. You never fully mature into the man or woman or leader you were meant to be. But even though God says you are so valuable to him that he sent his own son to die for you, if you believe you're worthless then you'll never realize your potential in this life because you'll always be more focused on what you can't do rather than what you can do. And as a result, you don't take the risks or experience the rewards you would if you just understood how valuable you actually are to God and to his people. You see, people approach their lives based on who they truly believe they are, which, by the way, <clears throat> that was true of Jesus as well. He was full of compassion he was patient with people, he loved to teach and instruct and disciple others, and yet when he was confronted by hostile voices, those who wished to silence him from testifying to the truth, those who wanted to convince him that he wasn't who the Father said he was, Jesus never backed down. He never shied away from those hard conversations. He didn't simply try to keep the peace. In fact, he could be very confrontational at times, but it's not because he was arrogant or ill-tempered. It's because he knew who he was. So he was able to approach other people, even people who didn't like him or believe in him. He was able to approach them with confidence and with love and compassion because his identity wasn't rooted in what those other people thought or believed about him. No, his identity was founded solely in who the Father said that he was. And I'm telling you, if you can grasp the reality of who you actually are in Christ Jesus, it will completely revolutionize the way that you approach your own life. 
It will. You will make decisions differently. You will handle your relationships differently. You'll see the world differently. Once you have a firm grasp on who God says you are, and that matters not only for you, but for the people around you, because the people God put in your life, they need you to be who God created you to be as well. Not a shadow of that person or the shell of that person or an impersonation of that person. No, they need you to be, to actually live as the person God created you to be. Why? So they can become all that he created them to become with you as a living example of what that looks like. That's what discipleship is. That's why he created you to be like Christ, to live like him and act like him and talk like him so that others would see Jesus in you. Which, by the way, is the only authentic way for you to live as a follower of Christ. And yet, if we're being honest, we don't always live like that, do we? Because we don't always believe we are who he says we are. We don't always believe we're as loved or strong or meek right, or teachable or valuable or fill in the blank. We don't always believe we are who he says we are. And so instead, we end up identifying our lives primarily with something or some things other than Christ. And... This is where the rubber meets the road because you cannot authentically represent Christ in this world if your life does not identify with his more than anything else in this world. Okay, calling yourself a Christian in the first century, that wasn't just a statement about what you believed. It was a statement about who you were. Calling yourself a Christian in the first century was to identify yourself with Jesus in every way. In every aspect of your life, in his spirit, in his suffering, in his glory, and in his love. That's what it means to be in Christ Jesus. You share, you take part in every aspect of who he is. So more than you were a doctor or a mechanic or an administrative assistant or business owner or mom or dad or husband or wife, Listen, more than a conservative or a liberal or a religious person or non-religious person or anything else for that matter, more defining than all of that was the fact that you were a follower of Christ, which defined everything about you that mattered, both to you and to the people in the community around you, because to be a Christian wasn't just something you believed in. To be a Christian was to be in Christ Jesus. You didn't just believe in him, you belonged to him. You took part in every aspect of his life, which ultimately became your very identity. Not so much today. Today we treat Christianity as a belief system more than an identity. But listen, originally those weren't separate things. To be a Christian was to be a follower of Christ in every sense of the word. It defined not only what you believed, but who you were, how you lived, and why you lived that way. It was ultimately the descriptor that defined every aspect of your life and identity. And yet, as the years ticked by and the church continued to grow and spread, it didn't take long for people to begin to separate what they believed from who they were. The result of which is always an inauthentic faith. You've probably heard me say it before. Believing in Jesus and following Jesus aren't the same thing. You can believe in Jesus and still not follow him. That's exactly what was happening in the church in Rome, as we've seen in these first seven chapters of Paul's letter to the Roman believers in his day, and it's been happening in the church ever since, because somewhere along the way, we've lost the understanding that to be a Christian is more than just believing in something new. It's becoming something new. And the way you become more and more and more like Jesus 
is by identifying your own life, who you are, more and more and more with him, which is the point Paul is making in this next chapter of his letter. So let's pick the story back up where we left off last time and see what Paul has to say about how we actually go about identifying ourselves with Jesus more than we identify with anything else in this world. And listen, the effect that has on both our lives and the other people God has placed in our lives. And because this is a particularly lengthy chapter in the letter, this will be part one of a two-part sermon covering chapter eight. So let's read it together. Romans chapter eight, where we left off before. We'll start by reading the first 11 verses. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So after taking several of the previous chapters in painstaking detail to lay out the way that God saves us in Christ, in light of that entire sweeping argument of Paul, we already covered that, by the way, in all the previous messages, Paul now opens this part of the letter with one of the most profoundly hopeful and triumphant statements in one of the most profoundly hopeful and triumphant chapters in all of biblical scripture. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yeah, that's a good place to stand up and shout amen. That word condemnation, katakrima in the ancient Greek, refers not to the guilty sentence itself, but to the punishment that follows the guilty sentence. So he's saying for those who are in Christ Jesus, it's not just the proclamation of guilt that has been removed from us, but the punishment itself. In other words, there is no prison term for our crimes. We have been absolved, set free from the punishment we deserve for our own sin because Jesus drank the cup of the condemnation of the Father for us forever. So now there's no condemnation. There's no punishment left to be paid. R.C. Sproul says it this way, if if we are in the sun, we are in the cleft of the rock. We're in the shelter of the rock of ages. We are covered and hidden, safe now and forevermore. This was an unthinkable concept to the religious people at the time, the idea that you could be pardoned from having to pay the price for your own transgressions against God without any striving on your part. I think we struggle with that today too. In point of fact, something that is often overlooked in this chapter, I never hear people talk about this, and yet it is deeply significant, the fact that there is not one single imperative in this entire chapter, no urgent command, 
Because according to Paul, the life in which the Spirit guides so constantly has no need for a string of commandments to produce righteousness in us, not when you're in Christ Jesus. Frederick Goodet says the chapter begins with no condemnation and ends with no separation, while in between, C.A. Fox remarks, there is no defeat for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so Paul goes on to explain all the ways for the Christian that life now reflects or identifies with the life of Christ, now that, that he has paid the penalty for our sin. There's this new and wonderful life, Paul says, for all those who are in Christ Jesus. And listen, it all revolves around the Spirit of Christ in us. In fact, in the previous chapter, chapter 7, the law and its synonyms are mentioned 31 times, but the Holy Spirit only once in verse 6. While here in chapter 8, in just the first 27 verses, the Holy Spirit is referred to by name 19 times. You see, because under the old order, under the law, which Paul was previously focused on, before the coming of the Spirit, it was impossible to do the will of God. And if people's lives are still dominated by that old order, doing His will remains an impossibility. While those who belong to the new order, the Spirit of Christ, we are enabled now by that same Spirit to actually please God, to do His will. And so although our bodies may still be subject for the time being to the law of death because of sin coming into the world, listen, the final word on the matter still belongs to the spirit of life. And so the law of the spirit of life, as Paul refers to it, is the principle on which the Holy Spirit works. It's a principle that operates in power, which, by the way, is supposed to be the distinguishing mark of the Christian the power of the Spirit of Christ within us, beginning with the defeat of the power of sin in our lives, and then the continuing operation of that Spirit from thence forward, because it's the authority of the Holy Spirit who gives life and empowers believers to do what is right. The Holy Spirit in us. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The word flesh it's sarks in the Greek, is referring to our existence apart from Christ. So any mortal human existence that is not in Christ Jesus is in the flesh. And so again, for Paul, this leading of the Spirit in our lives is not some kind of a sporadic impulse that just happens when we're really praying hard or worshiping deeply or studying His Word. No, according to Paul, this level of Spirit-led living is supposed to be the believer's normal experience. It should be a matter of course in our daily lives, which means Christian holiness is not a matter of some kind of painstaking conformity to uh, some specific precepts of an external code, like a, like, a, like a set of written laws. No, it's a matter of the Holy Spirit producing His fruit in our lives just as it was in the life of Christ. But that can only be accomplished in us through His Spirit in us. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. If you don't have the Holy Spirit inside of you, you're not a Christian, according to Paul. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Everything Paul's talking about, the life you were created to live, can only be lived by way of the Spirit of Christ in us, which is also foremost 
how we happen to identify with Jesus through the Spirit of Christ. In Galatians 5.16, Paul says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then after describing what that looks like, he says in verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Well, the reason Paul tells us we have to keep in step with the Spirit is because even as Christians, we can choose to live a life that is often a very different design than God intended. And so rather than follow God's plan for our lives, often we choose instead a life that we think we can control, one we think we can predict, one that we think is best for us. Listen, I'll just tell you, if you ask anyone in here who's 70 years old if their life turned out like they thought it would when they were 20 years old, you'll find out very quickly that most of what we experience in this life is actually outside of our control that it's impossible to predict, in fact, the direction your life will ultimately take. And therefore, between you and the God who created you, you are probably not the one most qualified to determine what is actually best for your life. So why do so many of us choose to live a life that is so much less than the one God intended for us to live? Well, in part, it's because we don't believe we can live up to that life because we don't actually believe we are who he says we are. So first of all, I just want to clear something up right now. If you don't believe you have the faith or the confidence or the understanding or ability you need to live the life that you know God created you to live on your own, then guess what? You're absolutely correct because you don't. Because the life he created you to live, even with all the faith you can muster on your own, even with all the natural talent and understanding and ability that you may possess, with all of the human resources this world has to offer you, the life God created you to live is so far out of reach, no human being can attain it without him. Which is why... When we're born again, God puts something inside of us that is neither natural nor human. The Apostle Peter explained it to the crowd who had gathered in Jerusalem during Pentecost when something clearly otherworldly was happening. He said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.38. In other words, you cannot live the life that God created you to live by natural means. Therefore, he's putting something inside of you that is not natural. It is supernatural. The very spirit of Christ himself. And only by that spirit will you be able to live the life you were made to live. But that also learn, that means learning to wholly rely on something otherworldly, something inside of you and yet beyond your control, something that will lead you into and enable you to accomplish what would otherwise be utterly impossible. It's living a life that is not only spirit-empowered, but spirit-dependent, which is, by the way, the part that most of us don't particularly care for because nobody really has a problem with receiving power or guidance from the Holy Spirit. It's the part where we have to completely rely on that power and guidance every single day. That's the part we tend to resist. And so we go through life believing in Jesus while exercising a certain amount of autonomy over his spirit within us because while believing in him doesn't really cost us much of anything, at least not here, actually relying on the supernatural guidance and power of his spirit for every moment of our daily lives, well, that's going to cost you something. And make no mistake, that's the price of admission for the disciple of Christ who actually chooses to pursue the life you were created for. You understand, I'm not talking about salvation. That's a free gift 
No, we're talking about people who are already saved who then decide to actually live as God designed them to, which may be far more rare than we realize. Because living that way is an ongoing daily submission to the supernatural guidance and power of the spirit that is working within you. And it comes with both great rewards and at a great cost to you personally. As we're going to see in this letter, at times it will utterly wreck your plans. It will humiliate every ounce of pride left in you. Been there, done that. And yet at the same time, it will satisfy your soul in ways you never imagined possible. And it happens to be the only way to carry out God's perfect will for your life. Listen, there is no other way. You may think you're answering the call of God in your life by working the plan that seems to clearly make the most sense at this point in your life based on your natural abilities and even your best inclinations toward God. But look, if that plan is not radically dependent upon the supernatural guidance and power of the Holy Spirit just to make each step along the way possible, then you may actually be missing out on far more than he created you for. Because look, Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit working in us would carry on the same work that Jesus did, actually even in greater measure through us than it did through him. That's what he said, which we see immediately being confirmed at Pentecost as the Holy Spirit comes upon the followers of Christ. Peter, by the power of the Spirit in him, then preaches a sermon. This is the same Peter who not long before was running scared because a teenage girl around a campfire accused him of knowing Jesus. But now Peter, by the power of the Spirit within him, preaches a sermon. You can read it in Acts 2. And as a result of that sermon, verse 41, those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I'm still waiting on that altar call. Okay, that never would have happened without the power of the Spirit of God working through Peter, right? And so we look at the life of Christ on the earth and we expect him to do amazing things because he was God in the flesh. We look at the life of the apostles in Scripture and we expect them to do amazing things because they walked in the power of the Spirit of Christ within them. And yet when we look at our own lives, we don't expect much of anything. Why? What has changed? I can tell you one thing that hasn't changed, and that's the Holy Spirit. The very same Spirit of God that lived inside his followers in the first century lives inside of you and me if you are in Christ in the 21st century. He hasn't changed at all. So what's different from then to now? In John 5, 19, Jesus said the Son can do nothing of his own accord. It's Jesus talking about himself. The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So Jesus completely relied on God the Father. In 2 Corinthians 1.9, the Apostle Paul, who's describing a particularly difficult time for himself and others, he says, indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. The apostles learned to completely rely on God. What's the difference between then and now? Why don't we expect the amazing, the miraculous, the power of Christ to work profoundly in us and through us? Well, my guess is that we have yet to learn how to completely rely on God as they did. And listen, if that statement describes you, don't feel bad because you're not alone. I could probably be the president of that club. It's perhaps my greatest struggle, and I would venture an educated guess that it probably ranks 
at the very top of the list among the all-time greatest struggles for most followers of Jesus Christ, learning to completely rely on him day by day, moment by moment, because listen, it's much easier in our flesh to rely on what we can see, what we can quantify, what we can calculate and plan and execute under our own power, that it is uh, far easier to do that than to wade into the deep waters of the unknown plan of God for our lives and completely trust him to guide us into a future that we cannot see. I've seen glimpses of it in my own life. I bet many of you have too. Those watershed moments when you can choose to completely submit to and rely on the leading of the Holy Spirit daily. It's it's breathtaking when it happens. In fact, the one common element in every great story, in every great adventure of my own life has been me following him often in spite of my own plans. Listen, I mean that even in the seemingly mundane routines of life. Some of you have heard this story many years ago. I was down in Greenville, about 30 minutes from here, getting glasses made. And the people said it's going to be about an hour. So I went out to my truck and thought, well, I got an hour to kill. Maybe I'll ride over to the mall. I wasn't too far from the mall. I hate the mall, by the way. But I didn't know what else to do. So I was going to go to the mall and wander around for an hour. And I got in my truck and started it and put it in reverse and actually stopped. And I said, you know what? There's an hour of my life here that I could waste mindlessly walking around the mall, or I could maybe check in and see what God would have me do for the next hour. So I just sat there and I prayed. And I said, Father, what should I do for the next hour? If there's something I could be doing that's a better use of my time, would you show me? I'm not kidding. I I looked over and next door was a big empty parking lot and a furniture store. And I'm telling you, it wasn't an audible voice, but I had this overwhelming sense from the Holy Spirit, go over to that furniture store. And I said, Lord, is that you? Because there ain't nobody over there. And he said, yeah. So I drove over and I parked and I walked in. There's nobody in the place but a couple employees. Huge place. And this lady walks up to me. And she says, can I help you? And I said, not really. I'm just killing time while my glasses are being made. So I'm going to wander around in here, if you don't mind, and look at furniture. And she said, okay, well, do you mind if I wander around with you? I said, well, sure, that's fine. So we're walking around looking at furniture and having conversation. And quite a ways into it, it comes out that I'm a pastor. She asked me what I do. And she stops dead in her tracks and turns and faces me. And she says, we need to talk. I said, okay. And she starts to explain to me that just a few days before this conversation, her husband uh, had, had, a, had come home from having a massive heart attack, totally unexpected, went into the hospital. They opened him up. She said he flatlined for some amount of time, I don't remember, on the table, like he died for a minute, and they shock him back to life, the whole thing, right? And he came to, and when she was able to talk to him, he said to her in the hospital, listen, I know we're not religious people, but while I was out under... I saw and experienced something that I can only describe as what I think hell would be like, and I'm really, really, really scared. And I think when I get out of here, we need to go find a church and learn about God. And she said, so he just came home a few days ago, and we're having a real problem because I know we're down here in Greenville right now in the store, and I work here, but she said, I don't live here in Greenville. We just moved to the area. We live about 30 minutes away. 
and we're having trouble finding a good church, and we don't know who to ask. So I know it's a long way from Greenville, and there are a lot of churches around, but is there any chance you would know of a good church where I live? And I said, well, where do you live? She said, it's a little town called Traveler's Rest. She said, do you know of any good churches in Traveler's Rest? I said, I know about one. And I told her all about Upcountry Church, and she and her husband came. For weeks they came and they learned about God and God has moved them on. But I remember saying to her, you know what, now I know why the Holy Spirit, I prayed, why he told me to come over here today. You understand, that's just one really simple example of listening to and being willing to be led by the Holy Spirit on an otherwise unremarkable day. Just imagine what we could accomplish together if we truly relied on his spirit in us day after day after day. How far could we take this gospel? How many lives could we affect for the sake of the matchless name of Jesus Christ? How many souls could we snatch from the fire? What kind of disciples could we become if together we truly relied on his spirit? The possibilities are breathtaking. That's exactly what he expects from us because his spirit in us is foremost how we identify with him. But you have to believe he can and wants to work through you in miraculous ways. Otherwise, you'll never trust him enough to lead you there. S.H. Hook once said, a vine does not produce grapes by act of parliament. They are the fruit of the vine's own life. So the conduct which conforms to the standard of the kingdom is not produced by any demand, not even God's, but it is the fruit of that divine nature which God gives as the result of what he has done in and by Christ in your life. Let's finish the story for today, verses 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So Paul continues to describe this life that is led by the Spirit of Christ for those who are in Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. I should have turned the mic off before I did that. And Paul's describing this life, and it builds uh, to this wonderful and yet seemingly incredulous statement. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That's, a, that's an amazing thing to say. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The word adoption that Paul uses here, first of all, is only used by Paul in the New Testament. He uses it five times, three here in Romans, and it doesn't occur at all in the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, because the Jews did not practice adoption. So Paul is using a concept here from Roman or Greek law, in both of which adoption was a very important aspect of the community because it signified you were being granted the full rights and privileges of sonship in a family to which you did not belong by nature. And so it's actually a powerful and really beautiful picture of Paul's understanding of what it means to become a Christian where the believer is admitted into the heavenly family to which he has no rights of his own, but is now admitted and can actually call 
God, the creator God, the almighty God, Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic word. It literally means father, but it was commonly used and at the time understood as a reference to the babbling of a little child who would use terms like Papa or Daddy to refer to their father. And so it was a familiar term used in the home, and it was very intentionally used by Paul here to emphasize this intimate nature of the relationship between God and those he now calls sons and daughters. It's, it's just amazing. And yet as amazing of a path that becoming a part of God's family is, Paul says it's not always an easy one to follow. As he goes on to explain, after all of this incredibly encouraging and profound information, he says we're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. You had to go there, didn't you, Paul? Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul says we not only identify with Jesus through the Spirit of Christ, but we also identify with him through the suffering of Christ. To take it a step further, the Apostle Peter, really teaching the same thing, says, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed, 1 Peter 4.13. I mean, that's, if you think about it, really a strange thing to say. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. What a what a terribly strange thing to say, and yet he's simply repeating what he'd learned directly from Jesus himself, who when reaching the height of his popularity followed almost everywhere he went by hordes of people who were anticipating his rise to power and almost certain liberation from the Jewish people uh, from their Roman oppressors. Jesus says something that we're so used to hearing today. We don't give it a second thought. Keep in mind, these people were hearing it for the very first time when he said it. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 9, 23. The cross that Jesus was referring to was, of course, the Roman cross, which was not only an implement of the most horrific type of death, it was also a symbol of profound shame to anyone who would have to endure it. Actually, it's hard uh, to give a modern-day equivalent of the cross of ancient Rome because our executions today are carried out so quickly and relatively humanely, if you can refer to an execution that way. Of course, we use methods like the electric chair or lethal injection and a few others uh, to execute those condemned to die today. And yet even when you consider things like the firing squad or hanging or the guillotine, those are still infinitely less barbaric forms of execution than the Roman cross where the condemned would hang for hours, sometimes even days, being nailed to a wooden cross, often naked in a highly visible public place until eventually they died from asphyxiation or cardiac rupture or sepsis, sometimes even predation from nearby animals. It was meant to be an excruciatingly painful, slow, and humiliating way to die. And in fact, it was the most gruesome execution imaginable. So you can understand, right, how Jesus telling these people who want to follow him that they would have to take up their own cross if they wanted to follow him. That would have been quite confusing. Just imagine if you're following your commander into battle expecting a great victory, but then your leader says to you, hey, by the way, if you're going to come with me into battle, you're going to have to tie your own noose first and then bring the hangman's rope with you. Then you can follow me. Wait, what did you just say? It's not surprising, is it, that Jesus describing his own death and the need for his disciples to take up their means of death as well just in order to follow him would be misunderstood, right? Because at that point, there was no precedent outside of the prophetic overtones of the Old Testament sacrifices. They didn't have the gospel written down the way that we do. 
They didn't have a lifetime of growing up in church, learning about these stories the way that we do. It's not surprising that they didn't understand what following Jesus would actually look like. What is surprising is that 2,000 years later, after 2,000 years of church history, 2,000 years of having the New Testament, 2,000 years of hearing these stories, 2,000 years of the gospel being taught, his disciples still don't understand what following him actually looks like. I mean, some probably do, but most of us, at least in this culture today, we don't get it. Even though we hear it over and over and over again, even though we wear crosses as jewelry, which is wonderful, by the way, even though we talk about living sacrificially for Christ, as we should, but often we still don't get it. Because look, Jesus didn't say, if anyone would come after me, let him be denied and endure his cross daily as needed. That's not what he said, but that's actually exactly how we think about following Christ today, most of us. We know that at times we'll be denied by other people. Maybe at times we'll have to endure the sufferings of the cross that are thrust upon us, but that's, that's not what Jesus said. Not even close. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You understand Jesus was not saying that there will be at times uh, as a disciple of Christ where you may have to endure the way of the cross. No, he said every single day you have to choose to embrace the way of the cross. In other words, we don't wait for the cross to come to us. No, we pick it up every day and we take it with us everywhere we go. Wow, I mean, what does that actually look like? Well, Luke gives us a very clear description. After Jesus' death and resurrection, the disciples, they finally got it. And once they got it, they started living it. And then Luke describes it one particular time after they'd been arrested and beaten for preaching the gospel. He says, when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. What did the, the disciples do then? It says, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, Acts 5, 40 and 41. They were rejoicing that they were able to be beaten and suffer for Jesus' name. Rejoicing. They were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That word dishonor uh, in the Greek, adamazo, it can also be translated as shame. In fact, if you read it in several other uh, translations like the KJV, NKJV, uh, NASB, they all say the apostles rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Do, do we do that today? Hebrews eleven thirty five. some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. They refused to leave prison after being tortured in prison because it was the highest honor for them to suffer shame and torture in prison for the sake of Christ. They were choosing to take up their crosses daily and actually follow Jesus. I'm just asking, do we even have a clue today what following him looks like in our pampered self-entitled culture, I'm talking about our church culture, we get so easily offended, so incensed by anything that even embarrasses us today. I'm asking, what would you do if you were actually put to shame by someone else because of your stand for Christ? Would you rejoice, consider it an honor? What would you do if somebody actually struck you, punched you because of your testimony of what Jesus has done in your life? Would you rejoice for the honor of being beaten for the sake of Christ or would you stand up for yourself and fight back? Would you praise Jesus 
for allowing you the opportunity in high honor of suffering embarrassment and shame and real pain for the sake of the gospel because that's what they did. And by the way, they did it with tremendous courage and great compassion and strength. And so look, following Jesus is it's not always a comfortable way to live. Having to deny yourself, tie to yourself, come on, die to your own pride. I don't want to do that. Die to your own desires. I, I don't want to do that. Die to your own entitlement. Die to your own rights. Die to your own preferences. And instead allow yourself to be mocked, ridiculed, rejected by others because of your claim to Christ. It sure isn't fair. And it's not an easy way to live. And yet it's one of the hallmarks of the true Christian life that we share in Christ's sufferings, persecution. According to Jesus, it means being hated by the world. Now listen, <clears throat> that's heavy, and I don't want you to be discouraged by all this talk about suffering because there's an upside to this that we're going to learn about next week because what we overcome and what we gain by living our lives in Christ Jesus infinitely outweighs anything that we suffer the loss of because of him. Actually, Paul makes it very clear in just the next verse, which again, we'll cover in next week's message or the second half of this message. Nonetheless, according to Paul here, we're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. Okay, it's one of the ways our lives are identified with his. And yet you'll never embrace how he says to live if you don't first embrace who he says you are. You understand, you're never going to embrace how he says to live if you don't first embrace who he says you are. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, that's who you are. And once you truly embrace that and you believe that, that you are who he says you are, it's then that you truly begin to identify yourself with him, to identify, to find your identity in him. It's also how his followers for centuries, by the way, have been able to embrace suffering, ridicule, and shame that often comes with being in Christ Jesus because when you're being daily led by the Spirit of Christ, you begin to see this world through his eyes instead of your own. And you begin to feel about others and feel about yourself the way that he does. And listen, once you get that, once you start believing that you are who he says you are in Christ Jesus, that's when you'll finally accept that what God knows about you is infinitely more important than what others think about you. And then suffering for his sake becomes something you can actually embrace and rejoice over because you know who you are. Author Philip Yancey said, we are all desperate. And that is, in fact, the only state appropriate to a human being who wants to know God. I'm telling you, if you can grasp the reality of who you actually are in Christ Jesus, it will completely revolutionize the way that you approach your own life. You'll make decisions differently. You'll handle your relationships differently. You'll see the world differently once you have a firm grasp on who he says you are. Because to be a Christian is more than just believing in something new. It's becoming something new. And the way you become more and more and more like Jesus is by identifying your own life, who you are, more and more and more with him. Let's pray.